Radio Influence. The future is now. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the first anniversary edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so happy that you are here to listen to this thing that we call a podcast. And I just want to start out by thanking everybody who has listened, downloaded, who has asked questions, who has interacted on social media, who has uh, spread the word. I want to especially thank... um, the guests that we've had, we've been honored to have such great guests. We have another fantastic, I, I teased about it last week, about a big guest. And uh, this uh, guest is probably one of the biggest uh, names in the podcast world and, and certainly has the background and history to match anybody in this industry as far as, uh, as, as, as uh, what, what he's done in his uh, career. So uh, Eric Bischoff is going to be on City Ringside. Who'd have thunk it? Uh, not me, but I asked and he said, yes. And, um, I went up to a bar in Detroit when we were doing the legends of wrestling. I said, uh, Eric, how'd you like to do my podcast? And I figured he'd say, "Ah, you know, I got a podcast going and, but thanks for asking. And, uh, he said, sure to my shock and awe. And, uh, he was sober too. Uh, and so, uh, he was a man of his word and he's going to come on for our first anniversary edition of Sydney ringside. Want to thank all the guests that we've had uh, uh, this past year, starting with Justin Roberts, Nick Patrick, Kevin Sullivan. I, I can't name everybody because I'll bore you all to death. Uh, but the list goes on and on. And um, they've taken time out of their lives to be a part of this thing we call a podcast and uh, and tell their stories. So uh, uh, we hope uh, that you enjoyed listening to their stories, and we appreciate them coming on and telling their stories. Some like. Uh, like Rip Rogers and Disco Inferno, we'll have back on as uh, semi-regular uh, guests a couple times a year, and uh, some have told their story, and uh, we're not going to bother them anymore, but uh, but we appreciate them nonetheless. Also, from the bottom of my heart, want to thank uh, Jerry P. Tuck, Jason Floyd, and the Radio Influence family. Uh, when I was first uh, thinking about doing a podcast, and by the way, uh, while uh He's gone on to do his own uh, stuff. Uh, the Lemon Bar uh, uh, kid, uh, Mike Freeland, this was his idea. And so I want to thank him. I would have never thought about doing it. He listened to me as a guest on other podcasts. He saw something that I didn't see and, um, and thought it would be good and, uh, and, and, and suggested that we do that. So I want to thank him as well. But uh, we, we were talking to different various sundry people and, uh, I reached out to a guy who I was friends on uh, Twitter with. He's uh, been a longtime sports producer and program director for radio and started a podcast company and just happened to reach out and said, hey, thinking about doing a podcast. Uh, have no clue what the industry's about. Have no clue what the heck I'm doing, what the hell I'm doing. And uh, met them uh, and the rest is history. So, and, and, Jerry at least has become a friend. Jason, he doesn't like me, does he? Jason, love you, Jason. <laughs> I, I I bug Jason. Let's just put it that way. And uh, and uh, but uh, but I, w- I want to thank them if I'm if I'm saying thank yous because uh, they become friends as well. So, uh, but th- mostly mostly, and I said it earlier. Thanks to you guys who download, who listen, who participate, who send me questions uh, for the guests. Uh, you know, without you guys, I'd just be sitting here talking to myself. And uh, I'm honored that uh, people out there uh, want to hear what myself and my guests have to say. So we're going to keep on doing this. Uh, we uh, are trying to book some big names uh, uh, in the coming weeks and months. And um, I talked to Conan a couple of uh, days ago, and uh, he's going to try to make time in his schedule at the end of the month and uh, want to bring on we've had jeff jarrett a couple of times just to tell stories for about five minutes ten minutes just to uh quick quick update and uh uh we were booked uh, in august to have a full uh basically career conversation with jeff jarrett about his career uh wwe wcw 
the controversies there, starting TNA, uh, leaving TNA, starting Global Force, going back to Impact Wrestling, and being in the Hall of Fame. So uh, we hope to have a great discussion with Jeff, and we'll give you time to send in your questions as well. And um, and uh, looking forward to a lot of big things as we move forward. And uh, so, uh, hey, not sure about you, but um, I happen to be home on a, what was it, Saturday night, New Japan Pro Wrestling? I believe so. I was away all week at a, at a, uh, for the 4th of July, so I said, uh, I'm staying in on Saturday night and um, poured myself a vodka and Sprite and uh, and uh, watched New Japan Pro Wrestling. And uh, aside from poor Takahashi uh, jamming his neck and, and, and prayers to him, at least he's back in Japan with his friends and family, I saw that and, and I knew immediately that did not look good. Uh, enjoy that style. I'm not going to lie. I enjoy uh, Cruiserweight. Uh, whatever it's called these days. Um, but uh, got to protect yourself, folks. Uh, it is, uh, you only live once and you only have one career. And uh, uh, see, too, I saw too many crazy spots on that show that uh, maybe just tone it down a little bit. Uh, I don't know. Uh, poor JR still recuperating from a broken rib. And um, if uh, Jay White hadn't ran away from Josh Barnett, he'd be recuperating from a lot worse. That was a unique situation. We talk a lot about, you know, people uh, not knowing, you know, the finishes to certain uh, matches and people knowing the finishes to other things and how not knowing is, is way cooler than knowing. And, and uh, there was a part of me that, that went back and rewound that a couple of times, uh, uh, that whole skirmish with JR and Josh Barnett and Jay White and Juice Robinson, who both of those guys are talented wrestlers, but Juice Robinson has everything it takes to be a star down the road, uh, not that Jay White doesn't, and um, and I know that they uh, they they broke in in the New Japan Dojo with uh, my good friend Fifth Finley's son David, who was not on that show, but uh, also has the potential to to do some cool things down the road. But yeah, I had to rewind a couple of times. Uh, uh, really wasn't sure if that was part of the show or that was the shoot. Uh, I figured when Jr. went down, it was a shoot, but I was shocked that Josh Barnett went after him. Uh, talk about a little bit chaotic, but, uh, uh, but yeah, the, uh, I don't know if it was because of the chaos or in spite of it, but, um, the finish got a hell of a pop. Enjoyed the, uh, enjoyed the, uh, the, the Cody and, uh, Kenny Omega match. Thought it was, uh, it was very well done. Uh, I liked the end and I knew something was happening at the end. They, it, they waited and waited and waited and waited and the Samoans came out and the Tongans came out. And and they they waited and then finally boom I was I'm, I'm thinking there at one point I guess they're really not going to do an angle and uh, they did I uh, texted uh, Haku uh, the next day that night actually he responded the next day and congratulated him on 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 being back around the business and his kids uh, being in a good spot uh, there's not a tougher guy in this business than Haku and there's not a nicer guy in this business maybe than maybe Bobby Eaton. Maybe Conrad Thompson. He's not a wrestler. Um, there's not a nicer guy in this business than Haku, and he doesn't have to be because he's uh, now he's now he'd probably make Josh Barnett walk the other way. But uh, uh, but uh, very happy for him and uh, his kids. And so uh, uh, dug the show and uh, let me know what you thought of it. Just really such a shame that uh, that uh, you know. Takahashi got hurt. Um, that was the first time I had seen him or uh, Dragon Lee. I had heard about him. Uh, so I was eager to watch that match, actually. And um, like I said, I was impressed with what they did. But one wrong move in this business, and uh, we'll just hope and pray he's going to be okay. Uh, but, but hey, hit us up at, at David Penzer on Twitter, at Penzer Ringside, and uh, let us know what you think of, uh, of, of what you thought of the New Japan show. Uh, what you thought of the JR, Josh Barnett, Juice Robinson, Jay White. I won't say angle because it wasn't an angle situation. Our best wishes go out to JR as he, um, as he uh, continues to recuperate from uh, what I believe is a broken rib. And uh, really, really, really happy in the last couple of weeks with the back and forth on, uh, on Twitter. Lots of great 
uh, insight, lots of great reactions to the shows, uh, uh, people asking questions, fun conversations. And so the more I learn Twitter and the more that you guys engage, the more fun we could have. And if uh, you do not follow me on Twitter, at David Penzer, all one word, or at Penzer Ringside, is the site of the show. And uh, so with that, I want to bring on uh, an esteemed guest, somebody who, God, if you're going to start a podcast, you always put him on that list of uh, if only we could get blank. And uh, we uh, got him to join us for our anniversary show. And uh, uh, he was my boss back in the day. He gave me an opportunity and uh, uh, went on to do uh, have a full career in w- WCW. Uh, I call him when we go out and do Q&As and, and Legends of Wrestling shows, I call him the man who created the Monday Night Wars. Uh, he also has a book. If you haven't read it, I read it a while back. It's uh, very good, called Controversy Creates Cash. And uh, as if you don't know, if you're the one person that's hiding under a rock that listens to this podcast and doesn't know, uh, a very, very, very uh, much talked about, uh, very successful podcast with um, with Conrad Thompson called 83 Weeks. Uh, we are honored to have... The man who created the Monday Night Wars, as I said, please welcome to City Ringside, Eric Bischoff. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us on City Ringside this week, he's a man of his word and I'm honored that he's here. Uh, You can hear him every week on the top rated podcast, 83 Weeks with Conrad Thompson as well. He's the author of Controversy Creates Cash. And I like to introduce him when we do some meet and greets and, uh, question and answers as the man who created the Monday Night Wars. It is my honor to welcome Eric Bischoff. Eric, welcome to City Ringside. Honor to have you here, sir. Thanks, David. Good to be with you, man. So uh, to start out with 83 weeks, uh, congratulations on your success. Uh, I don't get a chance to listen to that many podcasts, uh, but I, I try to listen to that one. It's my, To me, it's must uh, hear. Uh, got a question for you, though, on it. Is it hard to be challenged on a weekly basis? for decisions that were made over 20 years ago at a time where I was around, you made like probably 50 decisions just on a Monday. No, no, it's not hard. You know, what's hard is so many of the questions that I get, not just on, on the podcast from Conrad, but you know, when we're out even doing, you know, Q and A's with you and, and others that I have done, so many of the questions really come from, uh, the narrative or the history of, of things that have been written and discussed and printed and, and put out in video from people who really, you know, didn't have a clue of what was really going on inside the business of the wrestling business. So, you know, dealing with a lot of that rumor and innuendo as Conrad and Bruce uh, Pritchard like to refer to it as, you know, it does tend to get under my skin from time to time, but you know, I'm, I'm, I try my best not to lose my shit and keep cool. <laughs> I think that's sort of what makes it work though. Uh, when you guys do occasionally lose your shit, uh, let's go back. Um, and I think I got this right. 1993, after Bill Watts was fired, uh, WCW decided to hire an executive producer. I don't know 100% who else applied. I'm assuming uh, being there, uh, probably Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone, Keith Mitchell, David Crock, and Craig Leathers were probably on that list. And you were on that list as well. All those others had more experience in definitely in WCW and most likely in the wrestling business. Did you think when you applied for that job that you had a chance at the time? And what was your pitch? That impressed them so much that they hired you over all the names I just mentioned. Well, and there were, you know, in addition to those names, and I'm not sure which one of them actually, you know, applied for it. I think those were obvious candidates and some of them may have. I never really discussed it with any of them. Uh, but I, I do know from talking to Bill Shaw after I was hired that in addition to to those names internally, if indeed they were part of the process, um, there were some outside executive producers, I think one or two of them from New York and one from Los Angeles that had a lot more experience than I did as well in, in television in general. And to answer the second part of your question, no, I didn't think there was any chance in hell I'd get the job, but I had made up my mind while I was working under Watts that, you know, WCW as a company was heading for a brick wall. You were there, you remember how miserable it was. And I had already had, uh, my, my sights set on, you know, developing my own television properties in Los Angeles and had started having some success on a very limited basis there. So I was on my way out the door, and I thought, well, what the hell? I've got nothing to lose at this point. Well, I didn't know that that, uh, that you were leaving if uh, you didn't get the job. 
what, what, what do you think about it? Uh, what do you think it was about your pitch that got you the gig? Probably because I didn't come in and pitch like everybody else. You know, I didn't come at the the challenge from a traditional wrestling point of view. I really looked at, you know, where WCW was and its biggest challenges from a bigger, broader kind of television perspective and not necessarily from purely a wrestling perspective. And I think that was the kind of um, vision for lack of a better word, that Bill Shaw was looking for. They had tried other wrestling people that had a lot of wrestling experience and had come to the conclusion after, you know, six or eight tries, I guess, over the years that they needed somebody with a fresh perspective. And I guess Bill Shaw was impressed that I had a a, a different enough perspective. We had J.J. Dillon on a few weeks back, and he summed it up like this. He said, the perfect, you were the perfect person at the perfect time. They needed someone with the knowledge of the wrestling and the TV business who could also fit into sitting in a board meeting in the other tower uh, without coming off as a quote unquote. He didn't say Carney, but I think that's pretty much what he uh, what he uh, meant. Would you agree with that? I think that was part of it. You know, I mean, I, I can't you know comment on what JJ was thinking when he said that, obviously, but I, I think that there was so much. Oh. I don't want to say resentment. There's a better word for it. I can't think of it right now. But, you know, Bill Watts really, really set WCW back on, on its heels. Um, I think the North Tower, the executive committee, the people that really mattered at the time, Scott Sassa, Ted Turner, obviously Terry McGurk, you know, the ad sales department, um, Bill Shaw as the vice president of human resources that had to deal with a lot of the fallout from the Bill Watts era. Um, they were very determined to have somebody that had more of a corporate uh, presence and less of a wrestling presence to and not only in terms of vision, but in terms of, as you pointed out, you know, being able to sit in a meeting and not, you know, look like I was picking my teeth with a steak knife. <laughs> as someone who is there, if Bill Watts's goal in that time in WCW was to piss off every single person he associated with the company. I think he, in that, in that vein, he succeeded, but, uh, <laughs> well, you know what, you know, and I, I, I bust Bill quite a bit because he deserves it. And he did a lot of really stupid shit. Um, but Bill was not unlike a lot of guys in his era. You know, Bill was at one point very successful with mid South. He, he, you know, ran things a certain way at a certain time. Uh, when when it was acceptable, you know, Vern Gagne was very much the same way. I'm sure Jerry Jarrett, although I don't, you know, I didn't really know him very well, was very much the same way. Guys that, you know, who were probably in their 50s now going back to 1996 or 1993 or whenever it was, 1993, you know, they, they were traditionalists, if you will. They came up and, and had success in the 60s and the 70s or the early 80s, you know, before television and wrestling and every other form of entertainment really changed so manifestly. So they were, you know, they were, they were doing what they knew. And, and I understand that, but there's a point when, you know, you come to work for a company like Turner Broadcasting in 1993, you know, it was a publicly held company and yeah, it was one guy calling the shots, that guy being Ted Turner, but you still, you had to conduct yourself in a certain kind of manner. You, you just weren't able to get away with the kind of you know, small town backwoods mentality that Bill Watts brought to the table. And, you know, he had some good ideas. I'm not, you know, discounting everything he did. It's more the manner in which he did it, I think, was probably his ultimate demise. So before Night Show, even before Hulk came, I personally, being on the road at the house show, started noticing increased interest and in attendance at live events. I can remember one time we had 3,000 people in Greenville, South Carolina, which was unheard of. Uh, and it was based on the Flair Savage feud. Um, how important do you think that feud was in, in, in igniting the spark that started the success of WCW? And did you sort of feel like I did that it was starting to take off a little bit? Well, I, I, yeah, but I, you know what? I think, you know, I look at things a little bit differently um, because of the perspective 
from which I was dealing, sure. you know, there was no one thing. There was no one match. There was no one angle. Obviously, the NWA, NWO angle at Bash at the Beach, you know, kind of changed things in a very dramatic fashion. But if you go back to 93 and you look at 94 when Hulk Hogan came in and Hulk Hogan and Flair at Bash at the Beach in 94 and Shaquille O'Neal was in his corner and George Foreman was involved to a certain degree. You know, we started, you know, Michael Buffer came in. We brought in Muhammad Ali for a pay-per-view, I believe it's Starcade in Detroit. I think it was, I may be wrong, but we started doing things to, to mainstream ourselves into, to help WCW escape that stigma of being that distant number two, small town, small time wrestling organization. And I think it's a combination of those things and bringing in names like, you know, obviously, uh, you know, bringing Ric Flair back, obviously, but bringing in Hulk Hogan, bringing in Randy Savage, uh, shooting our shows at Disney. Those were all very progressive things in, in many respects. Not all of them necessarily were great for wrestling fans. You know, the Disney tapings, as you remember, you know, wrestling fans in general, hardcore wrestling fans hated that. Right. And I understand it. I understood it going in. I knew that that was going to happen going in because it was a very untraditional thing to do. And anytime you do anything untraditionally in wrestling, there's, there's going to be a backlash. Uh, but it was out of necessity. You know, if you go back to when we first started taping at Disney, um, you remember what it was like prior to that when you'd go to a small town and you try to produce television and there were like 37 winos sitting in the front row and the rest, <laughs> the, the, the rest of the building was empty. And the only reason the winos came was because the tickets were free and it was warm, you know, and it wasn't and it wasn't raining inside the building. And, and we had to go from that stigma and that challenge that had been going on for so long um, to finding a way to produce television that didn't look like you were shooting it in your mother's basement, you know, and, and Disney was a necessity. It wasn't the best choice. It was the only choice. But I think ultimately over a period of time, it was the combination of all of those things that made the audience start to feel like, hey, these people are really serious about trying to produce a better product. And when you bring in names like Savage and Hogan and you had Flair and, and, and some of the other things that we did, all of a sudden fans were just more interested in the property. Yeah, I'll just, I, and that all makes sense. I'll just ever forget, you know, you, you forget a lot as you age, as we know. But I'll just never forget when we walked into Greenville and had 3,000, 3,500 people there. It was like double the biggest house we've ever had uh, since I had been there. And, and, uh, and and it was it was you could you could see sort of smell the start sort of smell excuse me the start of something happening. In that vein, looking back, do you think you could have reached the level of success you did without Hulk, or is, was he was he something that that had to be part of that uh, whole uh, combination? Well, if it wouldn't have been Hulk, I don't know who it would have been. You know, it needed to be somebody that made the audience do a double take. And 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 you know convince the audience to at least give us a try. And Hulk was the biggest name in the business back then. You know, no matter how anybody wants to look at it, and you, people can say whatever they want to say about Hulk, Hulk Hogan's work in the ring, but there was not a character, a performer in the industry at that time who had a bigger name. And and probably to this day, he's still in the, you know in the minds of most people who are you know not you know so hardcore that they they myopic, you know, if you ask someone, you know, who, who are the faces that should be on Mount Rushmore, inevitably, you know, 99 times out of 100, Hulk Hogan's going to be included in that. So we need, you know, there was no rock at the time. The Undertaker may have been, you know, somebody that could have possibly filled that bill, but he, you know, he wasn't interested. He wasn't available and he wasn't as big a name then as he, as he became later on. So I, I think to answer your question, I don't, if, if it wasn't Hulk Hogan, I don't know who it would have been. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Jimmy Hart talks about it to this day that, uh, you know, he, he, he always says, you know, I'll put Hulk against anybody, you know, even The Rock walking through an airport, you know, uh, who's more recognizable? Who are the people going to gravitate to? And, and, and I, I, I think uh, I agree with that, you know, with the bandana and, and, and the, the, the mustache. It's just uh, everybody knows Hulk Hogan, whether you're a wrestling fan or not. Um, so back in the ultra-competitive environment that was the Monday Night Wars, your goal, at least the way I remember it at one point, was to defeat WWF. And I'm just wondering if that had happened, if they went out of business, did you have a plan of what happened next? No. And, 
<laughs> no, I mean, look, I, 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 there's been a lot of discussion about that. And, and I admit, you know, freely that in my bombastic, you know, over the top way of trying to motivate myself in many cases or, uh, you know, others around me, I probably did say stupid shit like, you know, my goal is to, you know, put them out of business. It was never really my goal. Um, it didn't really matter to me if they were in business or not in business. Uh, what mattered to me is that I was number one. I wanted to be the number one wrestling company in the world. That was really my goal. And, you know, notwithstanding some of the stupid shit I probably said, the, the, the hyperbolic shit that came out of my mouth at that time, that, you know, I didn't really think about them going out of business, to be honest. I, I became, you know, I, I heard the rumors, you know, I got information filtered back, you know, to me from people inside of WWF at that time um, that things were, you know, horrible. And they were taking the water coolers out of the building because they couldn't afford to have the monthly, you know, water service, <laughs> you know, fill them with water. So, I mean, there, were, there was a point when, you know, WWF was really, really back on its heels. But, you know, in, in what is, I think, a perfect testimony to Vince McMahon and in, in his intense desire to, to survive and to fight and to win, you know, he, he pulled it together. He found a way to, to hang in there and not only hang in there, but turn into a, you know, multi-billion dollar, you know, massive global company. So, uh, but to answer your question, no, putting them out of business really, despite some shit I said, wasn't really my goal. And therefore I didn't really think about what life was going to be like without them around. <laughs> So I had David Arquette on this podcast, and, and I, I know you know David. He still has a heavy heart about his role in WCW when he won the, the World Championship. In that vein, I wanted to ask you, uh, who, who do you think was a, which do you think was a bigger mistake as world champion, Arquette or Vince Russo, and why? Uh, well, definitely Vince Russo. <laughs> um, look, you know, a lot has been said about David Arquette and, and him winning the title. And, and it's deserved. I mean, it was a really, really bad idea. And there's no question. I'm not going to try to defend it or justify it or anything. It was a fucking horrible idea. We'll just <laughs> leave it at that. But as horrible as that idea was, again, you know, when you really, if, if anybody really wants to analyze it behind a, beyond a dirt sheet headline, or narrative, you know, the decision was made because back then, you know, AOL Time Warner was a big thing. Uh, Warner Brothers Features was producing a, a very high budget feature film based on WCW, um, featuring all of our wrestlers and some very significant actors, you know, back at that time, Oliver Platt, who's, you know, really, really an established, well-respected actor was in that movie. Um, there was there was a lot of great actors in there, and David Arquette was was a principal in that feature film. So the idea was let's try to leverage WCW's audience and and integrate him into his storyline so that it helps promote the movie. Still a bad idea. I'm not saying it was a good idea, and I'm not trying to justify it, but at least there was a reason behind it, which distinguishes it from Russo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh I, I don't know. I for I'm just not as offended by it as most people are. I'm not saying it was a great idea or not. That's you know that, that's an eye of the beholder. But I, I, it was a obviously a publicity stunt, and he it was a fluke when he won, and you know he held it for a couple of weeks, and so yeah. But he he, he well, was, and you know what, and you know what else? It's not like he beat Ric Flair for the title, yeah. or Chris Jericho, or Bill Goldberg. He fucking beat me. Yeah, and I'm not a wrestler, so sure. it was kind of a it was a stunt. It wasn't supposed to be taken seriously. It wasn't like we asked one of our established wrestlers to go out there and do a job for David Arquette. It was me for crying out loud. So it, it you know, I think people are a lot harder on it um, than it probably deserves. If, if you look at it from a purely business point of view, um, still a wrong, still a mistake. I mean, you know, in hindsight, you can, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or, or a financial, you know, savant to figure that out. But again, the intent, the reasoning, the rationale behind it was just not that far off. And again, like I said, if he would have had to beat a Ric Flair or Bill Goldberg or Chris Jericho or somebody, that's a different deal. But he, he beat a non-wrestler for crying out loud. If he if he had beaten Ric Flair, the world would have ended. But uh, 
Uh, so a lot of talk on 83 weeks about Zane Breslov, because I know him and Meltzer were tight, and I know Conrad quotes a lot of Meltzer stuff. Just to be clear, though, on a scale of 1 to 10, how instrumental was, obviously 10 being extremely, how instrumental was Zane in helping you create the success that you had in WCW, and what were his strengths, in your opinion? Well, I think, you know, Zane and I were pretty tight for a long time. Up until his death, we were very, very close. Um, and I would say, you know, of, of all the people that I would, I guess, looking back, considered a confidant back then, I would have considered Zane one of them uh, for sure. And there were a lot of times when he and I would just, you know, Zane was funny. I don't know how much you got to know Zane no, and I know, how much you really I, talked to him. I knew him pretty well. He's a great guy. But, you know, Zane and I would talk about 20 or 30 times a day for about 15 seconds at a spurt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Zane would call me up and go, hey, Eric, Eric I want to run something up by you. I want to run something by you. What do you think if we do that? Uh, never mind. I'll call you back. Boom. And he'd hang up. <laughs> you know, that that was Zane. You know, that was the, the nature of probably 80% of our conversations over the phone. But when we got together, we did talk about business and we did some things socially. You know, I met him out in Vegas quite often and we, you know, we did riff, you know, different ideas and different, different things. And Zane, look, in, in terms of tangible, um, measurable influence, uh, clearly Zane had the ability to help get WCW into an arenas in front of audiences that WCW would have never gotten in front of. You know, MGM Grand Casino was a, was a Zane Breslov initiative because of Zane's relationship in Las Vegas and the people that he knew and his his reputation and credibility. I'm not sure that we could have pulled that off on our own because despite, you know, whatever success, you know, people inside the company or even wrestling fans, you know, peripherally might have started recognizing in us from a business to business point of view, we were still regarded as a distant number two, you know, to non-wrestling fans, people that didn't really follow the business every week. They, they, you know, you'd go in and say, Hey, I'm Eric Bischoff from WCW. And they would say, well, what's a WCW? <laughs> what is that? You know, and Zane was able to help us overcome a lot of that in markets that we had never really been successful in before, you know, not knocking anybody else, Gary Jester or anybody else, but you know, they had a very limited success and a very limited small market kind of environment, you know, with the exception of a couple bigger venues, but Zane brought Brought, you know, a lot of experience and credibility with him, you know, in terms of venues, in terms of promotional stuff or creative stuff, you know, despite what Meltzer likes to, to convince his audience or try to convince his audience, you know, Zane and I didn't really talk a lot about creative stuff. You know, it, once the decision was made, we did. Um, once, you know, I, I set out a course about what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it, you know, we would often rip it apart. Um, and sometimes he agreed with me and sometimes he didn't, but he was always supportive at the end, no matter what, but it wasn't like I sat down with, with Zane, you know, over a steak dinner in a, you know, in a cocktail and said, okay, Zane, what would you do if you were me or anything like that? Or, you know, Zane, the, and the, the one that really got me is the inference, um, where somehow, you know, Dave Meltzer and Zane Breslov were communicating about the Mall of America. And it was really, you know, Meltzer, you know, convincing, you know, Zane that it was a good idea and then Zane convincing me. But to answer your question, Zane and I were very tight. We communicated a lot. He was certainly instrumental in the venue side of our business. And there were times that he and I did discuss a lot of things, uh, you know, creatively and about talent and things like that, but not in a way where, you know, Zane was driving the ship. He was more someone who I, that I would talk to with and and run things by him. And, and you know, he'd, he'd give me his honest impression. Much like, you know, there were other people like that, too, th that I used, you know, as a sounding board. Zane was just one of them. God bless him. Uh, but, yeah, you, you nailed him. 20-second conversations. Uh, so if you would have been able to buy uh, Fusion Media, buy WCW, and be able to run it the way you wanted to run it, all these years later, is there one thing that you could tell the fans that you were would have loved to do or were planning on doing that might surprise them as far as talent or, uh, you know, a lot is known about, you know, I think I'd, uh, Don Callis was supposed to come in and stuff like that. But anything that you wanted to do that might still surprise people all these years later. Well, I think, you know, there was a, there was a few talent, you know, things that we had discussed and, and some of them we had decided upon. Um, in the process of, of trying to acquire WCW. Um, 
you know, Don Callis was one of them. Joey Styles was another. Uh, I really like Joey, uh, both professionally as, as a as a talent, as a play by play guy, and I liked him as a person, and I l- loved his work ethic. So you know, Joey was going to jump on board, uh, but beyond that, you know, the real effort was going to be really kind of rebuilding the brand with regard to storytelling and character development. And to that end, we were going to uh, put significant resources behind a team of people that would have been much better at, at creating story than had previously existed, you know, 99, 2001 uh, inside of WCW. And that was really the direction we were to go beyond that. The only, you know, real um, determination that was made about that same time is that both from a financial point of view, um, not unlike, you know, what we did at Disney, we had started negotiating with uh, the Hard Rock Hotels in Las Vegas, and they were going to build an arena, uh, probably about a 5,000 or 7,000 seat arena uh, on one of their parking decks, on top of one of their parking decks, actually. And that was going to be the home of Monday Nitro. So we were going to produce all of our nitros out of Las Vegas Um simply because number one, it, it cut costs. Number two, you kind of had that Vegas rub and at least every Monday night you're getting, you know, you're getting a new audience. You're going to get some locals that are going to come back every week, but for the most part, the people that are coming through the hard rock, you know, every weekend or every Monday night, it's, it's a fresh group of people. So you'd have, you'd have a fresh, hopefully motivated audience every week. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen what that would have looked like, but you know, it didn't happen and you can't change things. Um, there are a lot of hell freezes over moments in this business, uh, a lot of which uh, you had a part in in WCW. But I got to tell you that you walking out, hugging Vince on uh, Raw and becoming the general manager may top the list. Uh, my wife, who really could care less about pro wrestling, happened to be sitting there when it was on. And even she said, holy shit, uh, was part of the motivation of going to WWE, maybe just a small part to top all the holy shit moments that you had created on Nitro by walking out on Raw and hugging Vince? Not really. You know, when Vince called me and and we had a, and it was a very short conversation, by the way. I knew he was going to call. Someone had smarted me up that, I, you know, don't be surprised if Vince McMahon gives you a call in the next couple of days. So it wasn't like, you know, he caught me flat-footed. Uh, and I pretty much knew what he was calling about. Um, nobody gave me any details, but to suggest that Vince might be calling me in the next couple of days. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't to discuss the weather uh, in Phoenix at that time. So uh, I, w- I wasn't totally caught flat-footed by the call. Uh, but, you know, within a couple minutes of talking to him, uh, he was just a cl- such a – I use the word elegant because I can't think of a better word. He was just as, as, as kind and – generous in some of the things that he said in the way he said them that I knew within a couple minutes um, that I was excited to go to work for him. Uh, For me, you know, my motivation quite selfishly was simply to put a positive period at the end of the sentence of my career. You know, up until that point, you know, my career ended with a failed attempt at purchasing WCW. Sure. And, and then I was, you know, completely out of the business. It wasn't really the way I wanted my story to end. And I knew, you know, I had confidence, I should say, that if I went to WWE as a performer, um, I had a lot of confidence in myself as a character and a performer. And I knew I could deliver. And I knew that I'd be on the largest platform. I knew I'd be working with amazing talent that I had never worked with before, which was exciting as a performer. You know, you you love to go out and work with new people and, and do new things. So I, I just knew that, you know, whether it lasted a month or six months or a year or whatever, I knew at the end of it, it was a very, it was a much more positive note than I had previously um, been faced with. So it was, it was just like a great opportunity to go out and have some fun, really. Sure. So, which leads me to my next question. Great segue. So you had that moment to put a period at the end of, of, of the career. And then after all the success that you had with that and your partnership with Jason Hervey, uh, creating content outside of wrestling, uh, what made you go back not only to TNA? I know Hulk went, so that might have been the answer. 
but I wonder after all you had gone through why you agreed to go back with Vince Russo as the writer. That's like the biggest question I have in this whole interview. Look, it, it, it's a complex answer, really. Um, at the time, you know, TNA Dixie was really interested in Hulk Hogan. Um, to to be fair and to be honest, they could they didn't they wanted Hulk. Is you know, Russo was there. Hulk wasn't in any way, shape, or form going to go to TNA with Vin, Vince Russo as the head writer without somebody watching his back creatively. So, you know, I was I was the Hulk Hogan tax, if you will. <laughs> the only way they were going to get him was to take me. And the only way, you know, the only reason I was there is, quite frankly, originally to oversee anything that had to do with Hulk Hogan's creative because he trusted me. And that was the deal. That's the only reason I ended up there. I did it as much for, I really did it more for Hulk. At that time, he was under, he was probably going through some of the worst stuff he's ever gone through in his life physically and mentally. And, you know, he and I were very, very close at that time and still are. And I, you know, I knew I could fit it into my schedule. Um, and I thought, what the hell, I'll give it a shot. I knew what Vince Russo was. I knew what he was capable of and what he wasn't capable of. Um, so I thought, what the hell I'll, I'll do it. And what's the worst that it's going to happen? You know, Hulk has creative control. I have the final say over anything that involves him anyway. So I don't really have to put up with any of Vince's bullshit. Um, I know what he, I know what he is or how he operated. So um, I went in with eyes wide open and, Quite frankly, Vince Russo was a non-issue for me because I wasn't subject to any of his nonsense. Well, that's a good thing. Um, anything in your opinion? That's that an un and that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any? Uh, yeah, I try not to tell people how I feel on this podcast, but uh, you know, I don't have anything against Vince Russo personally, but I just was never a big fan of his uh, his his ideas and his writing style. But um. Uh, that's neither bro, hit. bro, bro, why you got to beat it with, bro? You just, oh, bro, you just don't understand. Oh, bro, David, come on, bro. Bro, bro, no, really, if you just, you know, whatever. You, look, if you just look at what, what I'm trying to do, bro, you, I just want what's best for the boys. You know, the boys in the back, it's all I really care about. <laughs> just the boys in the back, you know. I'm here, I'm here for the boys in the back, bro. It's it's nothing personal, Vince. Uh, it is with Jim Cornette, but that's a whole other story. Hey, is there anything different in your opinion that TNA could have done that would have led to their success? Any ideas that you had given them that you think if they would have said, hey, maybe Eric had a point, they wouldn't be in the situation they're at now, which is rebuilding from the bottom? I don't think there was, you know, no real ideas in, in terms of, you know, anything that anybody else couldn't have figured out. You know, what, what was apparent to me from day one, um, was that there was nobody really, there was nobody there that had a vision. There was nobody there that really understood. And I hate to use the term understood the wrestling business, but they didn't understand the wrestling business. They didn't understand the television business. They didn't understand the wrestling audience. And, you know, for TNA, you know, they're, they set the bar so low for themselves that it was only a matter of time that it just was no longer going to work. You know, they had an amazing opportunity with Spike TV. You know, Spike TV, you know, was a great platform for them. Right. And Spike was very, very supportive. Spike did everything they could to try to help grow that brand. They went way above and beyond anything that was contractually agreed upon uh, between the two entities in terms of trying to to grow that brand because it would have it would have benefited them. And. You know, I think management at TNA at the time was was trying to be so ultra conservative and, and literally milk it dry, you know, and not reinvesting in the property. You know, I, I've always thought that, you know, when you're in business, you have two choices. You're either going to grow or you're going to die. You know, you can't just find a comfortable little corner and hide in it and survive for very long. I don't care if you're selling tires, you know, in a strip mall or if you're manufacturing, you know, smartphones or you're producing television. It's a very competitive world. The world changes every single day and you're either growing and changing with it or you're dying. And there was no real vision for growth. I think the vision for growth is simply 
wow, how many, you know, what was our, what was our, you know, how much merchandise did we sell? And, you know, in that arena that had 68 people in it, you know, <laughs> did we get $10 a head or did we get $14 a head? You know, that was probably the extent of their, you know, their vision for growth. And it was just a matter of time. And we, you know, we try to convince them of that, you know, and to Dixie's credit, she took a couple, you know, pretty big risks taking the show on the road. And you remember, you know, that worked. There were some big crowds, you know, so there was some real excitement you, you, and, and you got much better television as a result of it. You know, that, that, that soundstage, and believe me, I did it long before TNA did it. You know, we did it at the Disney MGM studios before anybody else ever thought of the, that idea. And it's okay for a short period of time. But if that's the extent of your property, and oh, by the way, if that property is on in prime time um, and people are comparing it consciously or subconsciously, not only to the WWF, but to other types of live action properties, you know, they're going to look at you and they go, wow, well, there's 300 people that don't know really what's going on inside of the ring. They're not really wrestling fans. They just happen to be there. Um, it, it, it really frames the way people perceive your product. And I think that's the one thing, you know, looking back, if, if whoever was running, I don't even know who was running TNA, to be honest with you, on any given day it changed, but um, whoever was really calling the shots there, if they would have reinvested in themselves, I think once, once they brought Hulk Hogan in and Rick in and Jeff Hardy in and Ken Anderson came in and they took the show on the road and Spike TV was excited about him. You've got to take advantage of that momentum. You know, you, you, momentum is a very hard thing to create. And once you create it, you've got to embrace it. And they let that momentum get away from them. And, and then they just tried to nickel and dime it to the point where Spike was no longer interested. And I think that's, that's ultimately what put them away. Yeah, I don't think they had the infrastructure in Nashville to uh, to take advantage of the momentum that they might have had. But, well, there uh, was nobody there. There was nobody that understood any aspect of the business. Right. I mean, there was nobody. I mean, you you could you could walk through the hall, and there were nice people. Don't get me wrong. They were in, in some of them. I'm sure are very smart people in their own in their own way. But you'd walk through the offices of TNA, and you you couldn't you couldn't find anybody that had even the most remote instinct or interest really in, in growing that business. They were all just wanted to hold on to their job and not get in any trouble and you know, keep getting a check for as long as they possibly could. And a couple of them are still there, I think, but uh, not many. So you talked about your story ending and the reason why you went to WWE originally. Uh, as far as your story ending, how much do you think about going into the Hall of Fame, WWE Hall of Fame? How important would that be to you? as like maybe the final chapter of your story. You know, I, it's, I'm like, I can't say I don't think about it because people ask me about it all the time and I have to think about it. Um, but I have very, very mixed emotions about it. Um, I'm not going to lie anytime. I think I'm normal. You know, I'm a human being. And I think as a normal human being, anytime your peers recognize you for your efforts it's it's a good feeling and i wouldn't be immune to that good feeling and and and, and sense of satisfaction um that being said i, I don't need it I, I i won't feel any less about myself if it never happens uh, i will never you know i'll never I'll, even if it never happens i'd still like to go to one and watch them because i love the hall of fame it's actually the my favorite part of WrestleMania. Mine too. So whether, whether or not I ever get inducted or not, I will still go and I'll still have a great feeling about it. Um, I, it's just that's something I need, I guess is the best way to say it. That's one, one aspect of the way I think about it. The other is I, I personally think the hall of fame should be about wrestlers and I'm not a wrestler. You know, if to me, you know, having, and I consider myself a peripheral player, you know, granted, I had a pretty significant impact on the business overall, um, but I didn't wrestle. You know, I didn't learn how to wrestle and and drive up and down the road in my car working for 50 bucks a night. And, you know, I didn't sacrifice um, that way. I You know, I sacrificed in other ways. You know, my liver did for sure. Uh, <laughs> you and I both. But but, I, you know, I didn't live that lifestyle. I didn't I didn't grow up 
in their business that way. And to me, that's one of the things that, and it's personal for me, but when I look at the Hall of Fame and I hear the stories from the people that are in the Hall of Fame, the wrestlers at least, you know, that's the thing that makes me go, wow, these people really sacrificed so much of their lives to get to that moment. And, and I don't put myself in that category. You know, if they ever had a separate Hall of Fame, like for executives, then fuck yeah, I should have like a statue out in front of <laughs> Fuck <laughs> but, yeah. But not, you know, the, the, you know the, the WWE Wrestling Hall of Fame is not something that I, I would feel totally comfortable with at any level. Just a couple more questions. We thank you for your time. I know it's valuable. Uh, I asked. Uh, well, I don't know that it's valuable. I just don't have much of it. <laughs> uh, I had asked uh, some fans on Twitter if they had any questions, and I said I'd pick out the, the best one. Uh, Brandon Hardesty uh, asked, what do you consider your greatest success in the pro wrestling business? I think changing the business dramatically. You know, if you look at the business today, you know, there's so many, and granted, I'm looking at it, you know, through my own point of view and my own ego. And I admit that I have an ego normal, but you know, you look at Monday night raw, you know, it's a live, well, now it's three hours, but it's a live show. Why is it a live show? It's a live sure. show. Cause I forced it to be live. You know, you look back to the attitude era and all the things that really got WWF up off its ass and allowed them to get to the point where they could go public and grow themselves, you know, to such a phenomenal company. Well, what ideas, what creative, what changes took place during that time that forced them to adapt a new way of presenting the product? Well, that would be me. That would be Nitro. That would be the NWO. That would be so many things that we did in 96 and 97 that forced them to change their game. And by changing their game, at least partially, uh, I think that, you know, we're indirectly responsible for them being where they are today. Um, there's so many things that they do that are so different than what they did before Nitro and that were, that were really a result of that head to head competition. And they won the war. You know, Vince McMahon's worth a couple billion dollars. I, you know, I got like 80 bucks in my pocket. Um, and I'm still doing Q and A's with you out on the road. So I get it, you know, but at the end of the day, if someone's really, really, really honest, so much of the growth and the success, um, in, in WWE over, especially over the last, you know, 10 years, 15 years is a direct result of those Monday night wars and, and enforcing, enforcing them to, to become a better product. Absolutely. And you, which, which brings me to exactly when you talk about the Q and A's that we do. To my, my last question, which is, as somebody who created the Monday Night Wars, who is the president of WCW and executive producer TNA, owns your own successful television company, how does it feel 25 years later to go to a show, a Legends of Wrestling show, and have Brian Nobbs of the Nasty Boys be the one running the show? You know, you and I were <laughs> together, I think, last time. We were, we were in Detroit. We were in Detroit. And I'm, I'm sitting in the locker room, you know, we're all, you know, Ricky, the dragon steamboat was there, sure. you know, hacksaw was there and uh, a couple other, you know, established guys with it. Mick Foley was there with us. Sting was sure. there with us. So it wasn't just me, but I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm listening to Brian who is now one of the most responsible people I've worked <laughs> with in a long time. And that I think is much more of a head fuck than anything else <laughs> because Brian, you know, of all the people, and I've known Brian since 1987, I knew Brian when I started in AWA. Right. I mean, I've known Brian a long time and been through a lot of, you know, ridiculous stuff that I've since put out of my mind, but to sit in a locker room and see, you know, Brian, first of all, he's sober. He doesn't drink anymore, which is mind numbing in and of itself. <laughs> and, and, not only is he not drinking anymore, but he's actually really responsible. And he's worried about other people being responsible and professional. And I'm shaking my head and go, this is a, this is a time warp that I've stepped into. <laughs> this is God's way of just really trying to teach me some kind of lesson that I haven't determined, you know, exactly what that is. But I'm listening, God, because right now I see, I, I see Brian over there running the show. And here I am sitting in the corner sucking on a warm bottle of water. <laughs> I had to ask you about that. Hey, Eric, thank you so much for your time. And also, I, I just want to say, I know uh, as a ring announcer, I was a small dot on a huge uh, 
uh, a huge portrait. But I appreciate the fact that you gave me an opportunity. And uh, if not for that opportunity, uh, I wouldn't have a lot of the great memories that I do. And I certainly wouldn't be sitting here hosting a podcast, of all things, and uh, and going to StarCast as, uh, as, a, as a guest. So uh, looking forward to seeing you there. Uh, just wanted to say thank you after all this time. And, uh, and uh, congratulations on the success of uh, the Must Listen 83 Weeks podcast. And uh, uh, look forward to hearing more of it. All right. You're a good man, Mr. Pinzer. Good luck to you. Good luck with your podcast. And I'll see you at StarCast. Once again, want to thank Eric Bischoff for jumping on and doing the podcast. He had limited time, but uh, was generous with it. And uh, I tried, I don't know if you noticed, I tried to ask him questions that, you know, because the, the guy's been on, on numerous platforms and had his own podcast and wrote a book and been on other podcasts and been at Q&As. And uh, there's almost no subject that he hasn't talked about ad nauseum. So I tried to find subjects that, uh, that at least uh, were, were, were kind of new. Uh, we didn't already know the answer before I asked the question. So I uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I want to thank all of you for who uh, wrote in questions. I was only at time for one, but uh, uh, I sort of one. I had another uh, 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 Twitter question about Vince Russo. So we sort of talked about Vince Russo and I even got the Vince Russo impression from Eric. I don't know that I've ever heard that before. Uh, I didn't even have, I wasn't even planning to ask him about Brian Nobbs, and I'm so glad I did talk about a great question to end on. Uh, as he said, I think a mind fuck is what he, uh, he described that as. And, uh, it is kind of, sort of surreal when, uh, when uh, working for the legends of wrestling, when, uh, you're working for Brian Nobbs, who's known in the business as a major party guy. And now he's sober and responsible and running his own successful business and uh by the way legends of wrestling are going to be in fort myers on saturday september 15th the rick flair will be there kevin nash will be there i believe speaking of kevin nash i am going to be this is just confirmed recently the host of the black and white event by rewind orlando uh you could go to blackandwhiterewind.com uh featuring kevin nash and scott hall i will be hosting the question and answer session with the outsiders as uh, we, they were once known. And uh, also I'll be hosting a uh, video game uh, tournament that they're having as part of the convention. Uh, I think they got real tag team belts. They're giving away to the winners of that uh, video game convention. So I'll be introducing all the names. It's funny. My, uh, my son, my youngest son, who's a big gaming guy, uh, he he always says that what it, he loves to watch uh, gaming tournaments, and he always said it would be cool to have like me or a wrestling ring announcer to introduce the uh, participants. Well, he was ahead of the curve because because uh, I'm going to be doing just that at the Rewind Orlando's Black and White event Saturday, September eighth at the Heaven Event Venue in Orlando. So looking forward to coming back to O Town, and the weekend before that. As we talked about last week, uh, we talked about a little bit at the end with, uh, with Eric. I'm going to be at StarCast. Three weekends in a row. StarCast and then the black and white event and then Fort Myers, the Legends of Wrestling. Uh, I don't think I've done three weekends in a row since uh, uh, maybe 2001. So uh, humbled and honored to, uh, to be at those shows, and I'd love for you guys to come out and say hello and support the events as well. Uh, once again, want to thank Eric uh, for great, uh, great stuff. Want to thank uh, all the guests we had this year. Uh, want to thank uh, the folks at Radio Influence, and I want to thank you uh, for sticking with us, for helping us grow. Uh, if you like what we do, uh, join us on social media, and let's have some fun. Uh, and also tell your friends and neighbors and spread the word, and please subscribe. And leave a review when you can. Uh, we'll be back next week for year two of City Ringside, and we're going to take this ride as long as you allow us to continue riding it and as long as the good Lord keeps me upright. So until next week, God willing, I'm David Penzer, still City Ringside. Thank you for one year. Good night. Goodbye. Sayonara. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence.
I'm Jerry Petock, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. 